Well, that should have given you plenty of time to make it to Luke chapter 9. And let's pick it up in verse 1. Let's read together. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And whenever you, wherever they uh, do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, but some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. And Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. As we make our way into Luke chapter 9 this morning, Luke is continuing to demonstrate the authority of Jesus Christ. He amply demonstrated that in chapter 8 by showing that Jesus had authority over the natural elements, that he had authority over uh, demons, and that he had authority over disease, and that he had authority over death. Now, Luke is now sharing with us that he has authority to give this power and authority to others. Sending the twelve out in their first dry run as apostles, and that word apostles in the Bible means one who is sent out. And as a result, they are now learning firsthand what they can uh, uh, expect to experience after Jesus ascends into heaven in the book of Acts and what they will encounter on their own by themselves and so forth. Jesus is demonstrating to them that they too, through him, can have the power and authority to continue the ministry, the work that Jesus started in his earthly ministry. They can continue that after his ascension back into heaven. And so they begin to make their way through the region of Galilee into all the small towns. Not only does he give them power and authority, but he then gives them instruction. And then they also, uh, we read of the impact in which they had to the point that even Herod, the Tetrarch, the one appointed by Rome to oversee the Jewish people on their behalf, has now heard of the stirrings that this man has brought into the region, and of course now they have brought to Herod's attention. But in this small passage of Scripture, these nine verses, there are some incredible things that we need to consider as Christians. And the first thing that I believe that we need to consider is this, that what Jesus started 2,000 years ago is continuing in and through his church on this earth today. Just because we are 2,000 years removed and Jesus has ascended back into heaven, it doesn't mean that the work in which he started has ceased. 
It is continuing. When you get to Acts chapter 28, I'm going to tell you this, if you haven't read the book of Acts, it has one of the worst endings you can possibly imagine. Because it doesn't have an ending. It's not meant to have an ending. It's an open-ended letter in which Luke writes to Theophilus, demonstrating that the work in which Jesus started was then carried out through the hands of the apostles, and then those disciples of the apostles continued that work in their generation at their time. Today, we are supposed to be continued in that line, in that stream of work that Jesus started. We are meant as the church to be the hands, the feet, the body of Jesus Christ, he being the head who is in heaven with God the Father at the right hand. But what he started, we are meant to continue today. And the power that they were given has been given to you and I today to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. Now, there is no doubt that as apostles, these original 12, they had unique authority in certain areas that we do not still have today. For example, they had the authority to write original autographs that now today become the Bible in which we read, specifically the New Testament. But that has been closed with the ending of the apostolic period and therefore, there are new, no new books of the Bible being added to the Word of God today. There was other authority that they ha- held that we don't hold today because we don't occupy that position of apostleship. And those things are articulated through the New Testament. But we do have power. The power to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. And notice with me that the very beginning of their send-off begins with Jesus giving the twelve power. Number one, notice that in verse one. This echoes for me, or I should say proceeds for me, the experience of Pentecost in Acts 1.8, where the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples, and it was all of them at that time, 120 gathered in an upper room, the Holy Spirit came upon them as promised by Christ. In Acts 1.8, Jesus said that he did not want them to proceed into the uh, ministries, the service in which he had for them, until they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And in Acts 1.8, he says, then they, you will have power Deutimus, the same word that is used here in the Greek, Deutimus, to fulfill the calling in which I'm calling you to fulfill. I'm giving you the power to do it. I'm giving you the ability to do it. The giving of the Holy Spirit to the followers of Jesus Christ is the unique element of Christianity that separates Christianity from every world religion that has ever been known. In each world religion, a certain uh, number of principles or tenets are given, but then it is up to the disciple of that particular religion to find the self-strength to fulfill the tenets in which are prescribed. It is like when you consider Buddhism. Buddha said that 
true peace and enlightenment would come to those who scale the Himalayan mountains and reach the top. And yet, no climbing gear was given to those individuals to allow them to fulfill that particular call or command. And therefore, it was their self that inhibited them from reaching the top of the Himalayas and reaching that point of enlightenment and that point of peace, etc., because they couldn't fulfill it in and through themselves. See, God knew that we were incapable of being the witnesses in which he has called us to be. A word that is uh, in the New Testament used to describe a martyr, one who lays down their life for a purpose or a cause. Jesus said to us very clearly that you would not be able to lay your life down in that manner if it weren't for the power of the Holy Spirit in which I am giving you. This allows us to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and to follow after Him. This allows us to pray as He prayed in the garden, Father, not my will be done, but Your will be done. This allows us to get past ourselves, to give a supernatural ability to, do a, to fulfill a supernatural call. So the very first thing that the disciples needed to realize as they were being sent out is that this was not something that was going to be carried on in their own personal ability, but in the power in which God gave them to carry it out. The Bible is very clear that there are three relationships between an individual and the Holy Spirit. I truly believe that the understanding, the theology concerning the Holy Spirit today is one of the most neglected and also one of the least understood. And often when reading statements of faith from other churches, there is great ambiguity to their understanding of the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer and in the life of the church. I will say to you that I believe that the Holy Spirit is the key component to the power of the individual in Christ and also in the church. That being said, a right understanding of the Holy Spirit is necessary to therefore carry out a right perspective of the Holy Spirit an anticipation of the Holy Spirit within the life of the believer and in the life of the church as a community. That being said, we know clearly that Jesus said first and foremost in John 14 that the Holy Spirit would be with you. This is the role that the Holy Spirit plays in your pre-conversion state where he is with you, convicting you of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, where he is leading you to the person of Jesus Christ for salvation through the manner of convicting the heart for the heart then to seek a savior and therefore to believe and to repent. But once we receive Christ as our savior, the next position of the Holy Spirit is in us, John 14. He resides in us. Paul calls him the guaranteed, the deposit in which God places within us to show and to demonstrate that we are now possessions of Christ and individuals within the kingdom of God. However, though, Jesus did not appear to leave it at that point. 
He then brings us to Acts chapter 1, where after he had breathed on the disciples and they received the Holy Spirit in John 20, he says, yet there is a third relationship where the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the Greek word is epi, to overflowing, to empower you to be witnesses. It is a dynamic uh, experience where the deutimus, the power of God, therefore, is given to us to fulfill the service in which he has called us to. Now, just a understanding of that alone is, is necessary to have a healthy church. That God will fill us with his spirit when he calls us to service and to fulfill the ministries in which he has called us to. And that for, therefore leads to the gifting of the Holy Spirit when you come to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. That the Holy Spirit gives gifts to the church. The gift of tongues and wisdom and discernment and healing and faith, etc. We believe here at Calvary that those gifts are still continuing in the church today. And therefore, they are used for the purpose that the Bible prescribes them to be used, and that is the edification, the building up of the church, the encouragement, the strengthening thereof, and to glorify God through that edification. But Paul makes it abundantly clear that these things must be done decently and in order. That these things are done in a manner that is prescribed by God, by the Spirit, and, is, and they are never used to draw attention off of God, off of His Word, and to the individual. And so the Spirit has play, plays a dynamic role in our life and in the church. And if we don't understand that, we are truly neglecting the greatest gift that God has given us to continue and to fulfill the plans and purposes that he has for us as Christians. Now, the unfortunate thing today is that we in our culture today have a tendency to swing from one extreme to the other. And nothing's done in moderation. And there are those brothers and sisters in Christ who make a spectacle out of the gifts of the Spirit in a hyper-charismatic manner. Where you think you've walked into just, I'll just say it politely and respectfully, uh, Christian chaos. And you don't understand what is going on. And people are doing absurd things and claiming that the Holy Spirit is leading them to do such things. Uh, Things that are unbiblical, running around the church laughing and screaming and throwing themselves down on the floor and convulsing. These are not biblical manifestations of the Holy Spirit, and they should not be accepted as such. So therefore, to retort that position, this pendulum swings to our Reformed brothers and sisters who go all the way the opposite direction and say that the gifts of the Spirit have ceased altogether. And it was only for the apostolic age, for signs to indicate that the gospel of Jesus Christ was the true gospel. But I don't believe the scriptures teach that they have ceased. However, though, because of the manner in which they are exercised within the body of Christ, you often have been exposed to one of those two extremes rather than a healthy position of what I would call moderation. And, and some may take exception to that. Well, how can you 
have the Holy Spirit in moderation. Well, the prophet is, uh, the spirit is subject to the prophet, meaning that the individual does have an element of self-control in the whole process. This power is something that is greatly neglected. A.W. Tozer once said that in the early church, 90% of what was done was done through the uh, inspiration of the Spirit, and 10% was done through the uh, perspiration of the individual. Today it has changed. Today, of course, 90% is done in the efforts of the flesh, and 10% is done through the elements of the Spirit. A.W. Tozer went on to say that you could take the spirit out of the church today and the church would continue along as it has in the last hundred years. I thought that was very interesting. The spirit of God is key to our understanding who we are as Christians. It separates Christianity from every religion in the world that Jesus Christ says, not only have I given you these commands and ask you to be obedient to these standards of morality and to be witnesses for me dying to yourself, I've also given you the power to do that through the Holy Spirit. And we find here that the twelve are given that power. But they also are given authority, notice with me, over all demons and to cure diseases. Power is the ability, authority is the right to use it. We too have been given authority in Christ. That authority is found throughout the New Testament and is clearly articulated by all of the apostles. That as believers in Jesus Christ, followers of Jesus Christ, an authority has been given to us because of who reigns within us. Because we have the Spirit of God, because we are followers of Jesus Christ in His name, the things in which He has begun and He has called, we now can continue in that same power and authority. Now, of course, it is in the, uh, the umbrella of His will. But that authority carries on to us. God has given us a certain understanding and authority in the body of Christ. This is a second point that I want to truly emphasize this morning. And that is not only understanding the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the individual believer and collectively in the church, but also understanding our identity in Christ as a follower of Jesus Christ, who we are as followers of Jesus Christ, and the authority that has been given to us. And in this case, He is giving his apostles the same authority that he demonstrated earlier as he casted out the demons, as he healed the diseases, and even in the other gospel accounts, even the raising of the dead. Jesus is demonstrating that his authority is and power is able to be given to his disciples. Now this would have set Christ apart from every other teacher or individual in that culture. No prophet, no simple teacher could instruct his disciples and also give them this supernatural power. That was beyond them to do so. 
Even in the Old Testament, when one prophet followed another and that prophet, the initial one, would anoint the other one who succeeded him, that anointing would come from God. Jesus is now saying, I am giving this to you. I am giving you this power. I am giving you this authority to continue the work in which I have started. To demonstrate that not only am I truly the Messiah in whom you've all been waiting, but that the ministry in which I am here to initiate is going to continue after my return to heaven. So, In this, we now understand that there is still a work being done and the same power that they had been given has been given to us through the Holy Spirit. The same authority has been given to us in certain degrees today. We in our Western culture have really reduced it to the simple understanding that once I believe and repent of sin and receive Christ as my Savior... And through that reception, have become therefore regenerated, where the spirit that was once dead in me has been regenerated, resurrected. And I become a new creation in Jesus Christ. I now have been spared the eternity separated from God uh, in hell, and now am able to enjoy heaven for all eternity. Now that is definitely true. I don't want to minimize that fact. However, though, an understanding of salvation uh, simply reduced to that is incomplete. Jesus came, and through his death and resurrection, it wasn't only individuals that he brought salvation to, but he was rectifying for all of creation the effects of sin and death upon it. Paul stated that in Romans, the earth is groaning, waiting for its redemption. God is making all things new again, and he is beginning in and through us as individuals who come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. We are the beginning of that restoration project. We know that it will all uh, conclude in Revelation 21 and 22 in the new heavens and new earth. But that being said, that the first coming of Jesus Christ initiated this restoration, this renewal of all things that have been affected and defiled by sin and death. (coughs) For demons and diseases to be healed in that culture was a glimpse into that restoration process. It wasn't simply to restore their temporal health to allow them to enjoy this earth more fully. It was a demonstration that God is doing a work that is absolutely uh, encompassing all of creation. And that by introducing the gospel, as he says here, preaching the kingdom or proclaiming the kingdom of God, he is then accompanying that with the idea of when a healing takes place or a demon is expelled, that a restoration process is taking place in the wake of that message. This is why I believe that our understanding of the gospel must uh, increase to include everything that God is doing. Now, 
What's difficult from our perspective is that as we continue to grow in the image and, uh, and conform into the image of Jesus Christ as a follower of Jesus Christ, we see the world con- continuing and digressing and falling off the edge of a cliff, don't we? And the space between the two is getting much and much farther. To the point you may have caught yourself saying something like this. I just can't identify with the world anymore. I just don't understand what they're thinking. I don't understand their logic whatsoever. The reason we are now asking those questions is because that gap between you and I who are being sanctified, taking out of this world and being brought back to the image of Christ that we were once created in, that image of perfection uh, that we won't obtain until we actually stand before the Lord in heaven, But the world continues in its digression downwards as we are in this process as God's working in us upwards. And therefore, we are truly becoming foreigners and aliens into this world. And the discrepancy is getting larger and larger. And as that discrepancy gets larger and larger, it has always been the case that as it digresses, I mean, and as it expands, persecution is often the result of that expansion, where we will now become verbally, physically, academically persecuted for our belief and faith in Jesus Christ. And I believe that we're there. I believe that we are getting to the point now where once we claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, the world looks at us as if we are now hampered and incapable of growing and developing intellectually. That me being a believer in Jesus Christ keeps me from intellectually developing in the areas of science and so forth, which I feel is an absolute tragedy. I believe that we in our scientific pursuit are still catching up to the incredible magnificence of God's creation. I believe that we, you know, simply recording the genome back in the 90s, you know, and mapping it out the manner in which we did, you know, it took 2,000 years for us to get there and God knew about it from the very beginning of creation. That being said... It is important for us to understand that when we proclaim the kingdom of God in that, that manner of restoration and God bringing all things back to the way they were initially meant to be, we need to understand that the world is not going to see that and the world is going to persecute us for not conforming to the image that it wants us to be and therefore not towing the line or uh, the... Uh, you know, reiterating their positions on social issues and so forth. And this is why it's getting farther and farther apart. In our last youth group, we explored and discussed the current number of genders that are now being acknowledged and recognized by the uh, psychological community. There are 121 of them that are now being recognized. God says, I've created male and female. Our DNA says we're either male or female. Yet, because we have dismissed God and we have truly uh, 
propagated the idea that we are simply a product of an evolutionary system, we now believe that this evolutionary system is continuing its manifestation in our culture today. And one of its manifestations in our culture today is the, idea, is the understanding that there are 121 and counting number of genders that we can identify with. Do you know that there were individuals that were writing papers when there was this spike of autism here in our nation stating that the real cause of autism was an evolutionary process that we are now seeing in the brains of individuals that haven't fully formed or come to that fruition in the evolutionary process. So they were kind of in this middle state and that's what was causing all of this confusion and all of these problems in their life. They, They were developing and we were seeing the evolutionary process before us. Now, they were ridiculed and by some and applauded by others. The moment we say that we don't need God is the moment that we are on our own. And as I had stated last week, apart from God, we are trying to do life like a dot-to-dot without using the numbers of the dot-to-dot. And we're coming up with very strange, distorted pictures because we don't know what the picture is supposed to be. But if we follow the numbers on the dot-to-dot, it is like following God's Word and seeing everything clearly and therefore coming up with the same picture that He originally designed us to find. These individuals knew that the proclaiming of the kingdom of God was, was going to introduce a restoration and a healing not only physically, spiritually, mentally, in our nation today. And this was to be accompanied with power and authority. In verse 3, Jesus then says to them, Now when you go, I added that, and he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, And do not have two tunics. He is saying that to them because he wants them to be completely dependent on God for all of their needs. First and foremost, if we are going to be the witnesses that God has called us to be, we must first be that witness in the power of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, if we are going to be that witness going out into this world proclaiming the kingdom of God, secondly, we must do it by faith. God was, Jesus was allowing his disciples to see that God was going to provide the needs for them. He didn't want them double-minded, concerned about the world and their needs within the world and the proclamation of the gospel going forward. He wanted them to understand that God was going to oversee and be faithful to the promises in which he has made to them and carry out those promises, fulfill those promises that he has made so they could then trust him for those things as they continued to progress and to be uh, the witnesses in the different regions and areas that God had led them to go. He didn't want them concerned about both worlds. He wanted them to focus on what was at hand. The staff was not only used for walking, but it was also used for defense. 
Paul said to us that no weapon formed against us shall prosper. The bag was for begging. This was a bag used to carry items that would be given to them as they begged for their personal needs. Paul says, my God shall supply all of your needs. Nor bread or money, for these are the things of the Gentiles long after, as Jesus said. But then he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And do not have two tunics. Meaning, they were always to be reminded that this was a temporal state, a stepping stone into the eternal state. Part of our understanding as Christians, we have to remember that this is not our home. We are pilgrims passing through. We are sojourners. We are vacationers. You know, vacationing today, it's amazing when you go to the airport and you start looking around at the different people traveling and and, and you see the number of suitcases they have, you know, and when you pull up to the side, you know, it looks like the Beverly Hillbillies, everything's packed on the back of their truck and the skycaps are like, (laughs) I'm not going there, no way. And you're like, well, where are you going? (laughs) Well, we're going to Florida. Forever? You know, uh, No, we take just certain things with us. The necessities. Knowing that it's just a temporal experience. The taking of one tunic was to demonstrate and to remind them of that fact. That this was temporary. Let us all understand that the 80 or 90 years that we are blessed with here on this earth is a mere vapor in the grand scheme of the totality of history. And I'm speaking of physical history. But if we take it into eternal history, it doesn't even measure as a blip on the screen. And as a result, therefore, we should therefore be greatly concerned about eternity. Not into the point that we are no earthly good, but the fact is, is that if we have eternity in mind, we will be willing to self-sacrifice here on this earth, knowing that our rewards wait for us in heaven. I'm willing to forgo the pleasures of this world, the temptations of this world, the draw of this world for the purposes of Jesus Christ because eternity is more important to me than the temporal moment. And Paul made this warning. He said, now, I wish you were all like me. He was single at this point and therefore he could be very mobile in his uh, ministry towards God. And he says, but be careful if you do decide to get married. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But with that marriage comes earthly responsibilities that we now have to be diligent to be responsible for. And he says, I, I wouldn't have you burdened by those things for the purposes of Christ. And it is hard when you have a family and you have you know, family responsibilities and so forth. Families are great things in God's eyes, but you know that things often become more complicated when you have a family than when you were single. You know, before I got married, if I wanted to go out somewhere, I'd simply grab my helmet, grab my motorcycle keys, and go. I didn't have to worry about what time I was going to be back. Now I have to check with the boss. <laughs> and we all know who that is. And I now have to check with my daughter, you know. And I have to, you know, 
put it in triplicate and email them and then put it on the calendar and, you know, so on and so forth. It's different responsibilities going forward. But Jesus wanted the disciples to be free of these things. Also, he wanted them to keep moving in verse 5. Notice with me. I'm sorry, verse 4. And whatever house you enter, stay there. And from there, depart. This is an issue, believe it or not, it is a sentiment of contentment. Whatever house you enter into, you stay there. And they welcome you, you stay there. Don't look for a better home. Be content with what God has provided for you. And as a result, therefore, they weren't looking to better their environment. And as a result, they were therefore avoiding possible favoritism within the cities, weren't they? Hey, Peter, you see that guy's house over there? He's got a pool on top of his roof, you know? Hey, we could do baptisms there. We could, you know, swim. We could do baptisms there. We could swim. And they may be tempted to try to better themselves or, you know, draw favorites from the individual who has those amenities that they would like to partake in. Jesus says, no, be content with what you have. Next month, I make the last mortgage payment on my house. What an accomplishment. That being said, Dean and I were talking about how God knew beforehand what we would need to serve Him in the ministry. When we first moved into our condo in 1994, we thought this was going to be a temporary stepping stone, you know. We both had good jobs, full-time jobs, etc. We were making good money. We were enjoying materialism as Americans would, you know, cars and vacations and so forth. And it came to a point where we were doing well. We thought, well, maybe now is time to, you know, upgrade and let's move into a home and let's get some amenities and a yard and all these other things. And the Lord shut the door on us so swiftly, so hard that we felt, I mean, rattled our teeth, he shut it so hard. And we didn't know what God was doing. Well, just some months later, I was, uh, the position that I held at the company that I worked for was eliminated. And God was leading us to start the church. And as a result, when it was possible, I was able to become a full-time pastor and live on a very, uh, you know, um, moderate salary because my mortgage payment was so reasonable. And God saw that beforehand. And he asked us to be content with what he had given us. And now, 25 years later, we're paying it off. Not only did he allow us to serve in a full-time capacity here at the church because of the simplicity of the home in which we lived and we feel it's a we feel it's a Taj Mahal we love it we're not saying oh if we only had better I don't have a garage for my Corvette I am a little disappointed about that but I don't have the Corvette either so God's perfect you know you know but now looking back on it Dean and I said oh Lord you are so wise it's so incredible You know, and as a result, we've been able to be here for you guys over the course of these years. And just two years ago, here at the church, 
I now have met the salary that I had in 1995. (laughs) And I was all happy. You know, I was like, Lord, you're too good. But that being said, God's wisdom is absolutely incredible if we are willing to be content with what He has provided for us. You know, we have a saying that God will provide all of our needs, but He doesn't doesn't claim or promise that He'll provide all of your wants. He knew what we needed. And if we were willing to be content, then He could do other things. And I'm I'm so gracious that He gave us the grace to be content. In verse 5, and wherever they do not receive you, and when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages and preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. This removal of the dust of their feet was an indication of the rejection of the people of the message in which they were proclaiming. And to indicate that God would judge these people for the unwillingness and the rejection of the gospel. However, though, it is interesting that in rabbinic writings give us this understanding that when individuals came to the temple, they would shed themselves of their staff, they would shed themselves of their money bag. They would shed themselves of any food. They would shed themselves of any extra clothing that wasn't necessary. And they would shake off the dust of their feet before entering into the temple, which of course was the central location, the epicenter for one to interact with God. This was a procedure that was well known in that culture of of doing these things prior to entering into the temple. It is interesting, and Barclay brings this out in his commentary, he said, it is interesting that Jesus may have thought that the interaction between his apostles and those hearing and receiving or rejecting the message of Jesus Christ, the gospel, the good news, that was their moment with God. That was their encounter, their interaction with God, just as if one had gone to the temple and worshiped God there in the specific location of the temple. Hearing the gospel is an individual's appointment with God. And receiving it and rejecting it or rejecting it is key crucial to that appointment. Something for you to consider. So they went out by faith. And lastly, the impact of them going out came and even reached the hearing of Herod. Verse 7, now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all about that which was happening. And he was perplexed, confused. He was stymied intellectually by what was going on because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead and by some that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. And Herod said, but I beheaded John. As all of us know, if you go to Mark's gospel, you will read and indicate that after John was arrested for preaching against Herod, who had taken his brother's wife as, uh, as his wife, the daughter of his new wife danced before Herod, and Herod promised her anything in return for her dancing before him. 
in a provocative way. That was it. If you're going to entertain me in this provocative way, I will give you anything that you desire. And so she, through her mother's bequest, uh, asked for the head of John the Baptist. And you can read that in Mark's Gospel if you choose. That being said here, Herod is perplexed by all of this. The rumors are spreading that this is Elijah that Malachi had prophesied of. This is John the Baptist being resurrected from the dead. And of course, that would have truly concerned him because now he knew that he uh, laid in a wake of judgment. Or some other Old Testament prophet that arose from the dead. The perplexity that Herod shows shows us that the world also carries a perplexity about Jesus Christ. But the third thing that should encourage us, after knowing that we've been given power and authority, after we know that we can proceed by faith in trusting the promises of God and standing upon them, to rely on those promises as God guides us through this world. Thirdly, you and I as witnesses of Jesus Christ are not in the fog of perplexity concerning the identity of Jesus. We know exactly who He is. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is the Son of God, God Himself, who came and died for the sins of the world because God loved the world and sent His only begotten Son. We know who Jesus is. We know that Jesus demonstrated and fulfilled all the prophecies of the Old Testament concerning His identity. The 333 prophecies of the Old Testament that all were fulfilled in His first coming are now going to be followed by the 600-some prophecies of His second coming. You and I don't have to wonder or wander around in a fog of confusion concerning the true identity of Jesus. We know who He is. And therefore, in knowing who He is, we can have great confidence going forward, can't we? And this way, we can trust Him to be that mediation between us and God the Father. We can trust Him for our salvation because on the third day, God raised Him from the dead. We can trust the words in which he spoke to us because he climaxed it all and put the exclamation point on it all at the third day that the women came and saw that the tomb was empty. We can trust that he was who he said he was because the men who followed after him, the individuals who followed after him, were able to do the same things that he was able to do through the power and the authority of the Holy Spirit. We don't walk around in that confusion, do we? We know who He is. To the point that through Him, the great God of the universe who has created all things, the individual that will reign for all eternity, the one in whom you and I will enjoy eternity future because of the fact of all that He has done, it is Him who is mediating for us. It is Him who allows us to rush into the throne room of God to find grace and help in our time of need. It is through Him that allows us to call the great God of the universe, Dad, Abba, Father. It is through Him. So when I pray, 
I know that I am praying to the God of all things. And I don't have to wonder like Herod, has John come back to pronounce judgment upon me? Will Jesus return and with his return bring judgment with him? I don't fret those things. Why? Because I am in him. And because I am in Christ, I have now been spared the wrath of God. What a joy that is. And that I can know him personally and intimately. Just as Peter, John, James, Matthew, Bartholomew did Simon at his time, at their time, that they walked with him and were sent out by him. Herod, the great tetrarch, the great ruler, was blinded to his own reality due to his sin and due to his greed. Next week we will continue on as we see Jesus feeding the 5,000. But as we come now to communion together on the first of the Sunday of the month, and we remember all that Jesus has done for us, that through Him we now have power and authority, that in and through Him we can now be the recipients of the great promises that God made to us through His Word, and know that the promises that God has made He is able to perform. And thirdly, now we know God personally in Jesus Christ. It is not something that we simply know of Him. We can say that we know Him. And more importantly, that He knows us. That's the relation God desires to have with you through Christ. It is that relationship that we offer each and every time we come together to anyone who will believe. Simply believe on the the resurrected Christ, and you will be saved.